or a Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God for all eternity. Amen. This is the second in the January series about Madison Heights' mission and vision. Uh, Randy spoke last week about uh, this being a refuge for broken people. And you know, the next part of the mission statement is, th is this. Our mission is to be a refuge for broken people where we experience the grace of Christ and express the truth of the gospel. So I get to make that next step with you and get you to think about what it is to experience the grace of Christ and express the truth of the gospel. Randy's already set this up so well, of course, in the 830 sermon and talking about that. He mentioned a couple of really great primary texts uh, about that. I'm going to mention one, but not read the whole thing from start to finish, but it's one that should be familiar to you. It's in Luke chapter 7, the last half or so of that chapter, starting at verse 36 and going on through verse 50. And I'm, I'm going to read the, the, the real punch uh, phrase, the big point of that story in just a moment. What I'm going to do is not do an exposition of this passage or another, but kind of bring in this thing and that thing that you probably already know and you've heard, but I want to package them and bring them together in a way that helps you understand the, the importance of this relationship between experiencing grace and expressing truth. This is really important. In fact, this is basically why I'm here to help uh, reinforce that, to help both with the staff and with the congregation in uh, helping us establish some really helpful, useful pathways so that people can grow in grace, so that people can experience that grace and also grow in it and learn to express it. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how that works. You know, Luke 7, uh, start at verse 36, is that incident where Jesus is invited to the home of one of the Pharisees for a meal. And while they're eating, this uh, awkward scene develops when a woman comes and she was a sinner, Luke tells us, terrible reputation. She comes into the house, standing behind Jesus at his feet as he was reclining at the table, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed him with the ointment. The Pharisee is, is appalled at this, and he's thinking to himself, if he knew the kind of person this was, he wouldn't let this happen. And of course, Jesus says, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story about two men who each owed a debt. One small debt, one a larger, neither could pay. The creditor canceled the debt of both men, and he asked, which of them will love him more? And Simon, of course, says, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, yes, you judged rightly. And he points to this woman, and he says, the big punchline there at verse 47, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, 
loves little. Jesus' words imply a, a relationship, a movement, progress, development along these lines. We, don't we want to be people who are forgiven much and love much? Of course we do. So he's talking about this very thing, experiencing gospel grace and then expressing gospel truth. Uh, being being people who understand what it is that Christ is in us, and then it also leads to an understanding that we are in Christ. And that changes everything in life. Christ is for us, and we are for Christ because of that. Um, I have a degree in English, be very impressed. I use it every day. Some of you have degrees you don't use every day. I use mine every day. I, and I just, I love grammar. I love words, history, languages, English and other languages as well. I love, love the way it works. But I, let, me, uh, let me put a little high level, you know, junior, senior level grammar on you. Words you probably don't think about unless you're an English teacher. Uh, you know, uh, an indicative statement that has that word indicate in it, right? An indicative statement is just simply, I'm stating something. It's good to see you this morning. You know, that's, that's just an indicative statement. We make them all the time. We're stating facts about things. I am 55 years old. I like coffee. All kinds of statements like that. Now, an imperative statement is a statement where you're trying to command somebody, you want somebody to do something. Bring me some coffee. <laughs> We're saying, uh, you know, go to your room. <laughs> Clean up your room, you say to your kids. Stop bothering me. We're telling those are things that we're, we're commanding. We want something to happen. And there's this relationship in understanding the Christian life between experiencing grace and expressing truth that works like this. There's, a, there's an indicative of the gospel that says to us, like we're saying, your sins, which are many, are forgiven. You are justified, not by what you've done, but by grace in Jesus Christ. He has done it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson, st crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That's indicative stuff. That's the truth, the reality. The gospel also brings an imperative. We're going to look at it in just a second. Is now walk as children of light. Now walk in love. Now put that old way of life off and put it to death. Get a chokehold on it, strangle it till it stops twitching and breathing and put on the new man, put on Christ. That's the imperative of the gospel. Live as, a new pe live as new people, love much. So there's this relationship between doctrine and discipleship. They're not se separate things. It's to be a disciple is to be someone who is on the pathway Somebody who is a convert in motion, one guy described it that way. And that's something that seems so obvious. I see a lot of nods and affirmation. That's good. Keep doing that. If you're the kind of person, I appreciate it. But let's acknowledge something that, particularly if you've been around 
PCA churches, we're, we tend to be really good on the doctrine side, but we tend to sometimes get out of whack on the discipleship side. People like me who've been to seminary and been teaching and preaching for a long time, we're good at dumping information on you. And that's good, but what I want to stand here and point out to you is that just simply isn't enough. It's not enough just to get another lecture and to hear something that maybe you, oh, I haven't heard that in a long time. I like the way he says that. I didn't, no, I'm not following. This is what this church life thing is about more than just dumping information. This is a place where churches tend to bog down. But guess what? It happened in the first century as well. In the letter of James, he talks about that very same problem. In chapter 1, verse 22, he says it this way, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Isn't that a strange thing to think about? And I think he's, he wants us to see the absurdity of that. There's not something he's saying that, you know, was true in that day that we don't understand. What he's saying, in essence, is that simply hearing the truth but failing to do it, failing to be in motion with it, is like forgetting your name. Think how many times you have to say or type in your name or fill it out on a form when you go to the doctor's office. Think about, uh, you know, to think, or you look at that whole form and it asks for your, you know, you're filling something out and asks for your nationality and you go, well, wait a minute. Oh, I saw, I, wow, I automatically went, this is going to see who's really old, who's older than I am, where it's going to become out. Columbo, remember him? Peter Falk, the detective. I saw an episode not long ago and Johnny Cash was the bad guy. It was awesome. He got him to. Johnny Cash was the bad guy. Anyway, so yeah, this thing of, well, well, wait, tell me one more thing. There's something I don't understand. You look at it and you think, wait, what am I, am I, am I American? What does my driver's license say? You know, and, and you know, we don't, we don't have to do that with so many vital things about ourselves. Your social security number, you probably should know that by now. Don't, don't give it out. Don't shout it out. Your address, your phone number, that's what he said. There are things about your identity that you're forgetting if you are simply hearing the word, but it just kind of ends right there. Our goal here at Madison Heights is not just to dump information on you and get you to read the right books. We want to see changed lives. We want to see joy in people's lives. We want to see humility in people's lives. Boldness and goodness and love and, for lack of a better word, electricity in people's lives. Now, some of you are kind of low wattage, and that's okay. <laughs> Just as long as the light's on, it's okay. If you're, you know, if you're 40 watt, not everybody's 150 watts, it's okay.
Now, most churches, though, will go, yeah, yeah, we want to see that. But now, stay with me here. There are a couple of ways to try to get that. Churches will often try to do that through manipulation. Try to get you to feel something. Manipulate you maybe through guilt. You know, um, you know, and here's the thing of, you know, well, who, who had a quiet time every day this week? Oh, you know, who prayed every day this week? Well, how long did you pray? There's no, you know, there's no end to the guilt manipulation. And guilt works as a good short-term motivator. But it's not, it's not about changing lives. Or they can do it through just being bossy and authoritarian. Some of you have experienced that in church life. Our goal is to see changed lives without authoritarianism, without manipulation. How do you do it then? Well, you do it through the preaching of the gospel. I had, I had this, this memory the other day. It was just a couple of weeks before I graduated from RTS. Long, long ago, 1994. Judy and I were eating in a restaurant here in Jackson. And I saw across the restaurant this older couple, immediately recognized them. They were our neighbors across the street when I was growing up in South Jackson. Do y'all know I grew up in South Jackson? It puts a little fear in you, doesn't it? <laughs> you should be afraid of me. Uh, I've spent my teenage years over in 39211. I'm a survivor of 39211. I grew up in 39204. And the fact I found out... Um, FedEx won't deliver to 39204 anymore, but that's another story. So, but again, be afraid of me. These folks, uh, neighbors of ours, their kids were, one was a couple of years older, one a year younger than I, so we played all the time, and I'd not seen them in years, and went over and spoke to them, and we were, you know, catching up, and they knew, oh, wow, you're about to graduate seminary. I was telling them, yeah, I'm about to do that. Then we're moving to Auburn, Alabama. I'm going to serve as an assistant pastor at a church there. And the, uh, the husband, the father, uh, said something that caught me by surprise. And they were a very devout Roman Catholic folks. He said, he said, you know, that's interesting that you're doing that. He said, I've got a question. He said, I think about this sometimes with church. He said, how do you get people to do what you want them to do? He said, you know, he worked in restaurant supply business and distribution for, you remember Morrison's Cafeteria and that chain. And, and he worked that. He said, you know, he said, I got people work for me. They don't do what I want to do, that, uh, what I want them to do, I fire them. He said, how do you get anybody in church to do what you want them to do? <laughs> well, there's an answer to that question. Here's the power. The power is not in what I can do to you if you don't do it. The power is in the Word of God, isn't it? That's where the power is. The power is I, or not just I, but anybody stands here and speaks the truth of God's Word to you, and it gets inside of you, and it changes you, and that's where the electricity starts, and that's where the change starts, and the repentance starts, and the humility starts, and the joy starts, the obedience and the generosity Stop there because grace and truth and love are like heat that softens and melts and reforms the metal of your heart. And it makes it into this cross-shaped life. 
the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ can produce new new affections, new love, new joy, new gratitude, new inclinations of the heart that eat away at self-absorption and self-concentration. See, when people stand up here and do what I do and, and do it through guilt or social pressure or emotional manipulation, you might change for a little while. But that basic self-centeredness in your heart doesn't change. I want to show you a couple of scriptural examples of how this works in a practical way. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. We don't have time to read the whole thing. Let me just give you a summary. And if you're a real Christian, you'll read it this afternoon. See, see what I did? <laughs> see how easy it is? See how easy it is just to be authoritarian? Uh, this whole section of 2 Corinthians, Paul's writing to this church that he had planted in Corinth, in Greece. He's encouraging them to contribute to a disaster relief offering for the suffering saints in Jerusalem. He's going to be headed down there shortly. He wants them to come through and be generous. But in that whole thing, he doesn't give them a direct command. He doesn't say, look, I want, you know, want $10,000 by next week. He doesn't assert his authority and say, look, I'm an apostle. You better do what I say. He doesn't threaten them and say, if you don't come up, God's going to get you. Some of you might lose your job. Something bad's going to happen to you. He doesn't even play on their emotions by stretching out these stories about how people are suffering down in Jerusalem. He says in the text, he wants their gift to be, here, here are his words, I want it to be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. We don't use the word exaction a lot, but let me throw out two words that will help you understand what an exaction is if you're an adult anyway, April 15. <laughs> you know, you pay your taxes. That's an exaction. Don't give to God like you pay your taxes. A willing gift. Instead, Paul writes this, and here's where he really gets to, here's how he wants to motivate them. He says, this is really wonderful, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is chapter 8, verse 9. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. In other words, here's what I think. This benefits you. Mm. That's a whole different way of thinking. He points to this grace of God and the gospel. Jesus, though he was rich, humbled himself for your sake and for mine to enrich us. And he's setting before an opportunity that's going to benefit you when you reach in your pocket and contribute to this mercy ministry offering. That's an illustration, because what he's doing is sort of injecting into their veins the salvation of Jesus through his humiliation, his grace toward us, and he says, now this has something to do with the world of need and disasters and wealth and poverty. He wants them to remember the gospel and its costly grace until that grace changes them into generous people. And he's saying, you need this. This benefits you. 
to do this. Here's another example. We all know uh, Ephesians 5, 25 through 33, Paul goes into talking about husbands, uh, let's see, wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. He's exhorting husbands, I'm going to focus in on that. Uh, here, as he says, look, I, I want you husbands to do something beyond what Roman culture says marriage is about. Doesn't want them only to be faithful, but he says, you need to cherish your wife. Honor your wife. Build her up. Why? How? What's the motivation? He says, look at the self-giving, self-sacrificing love of Jesus, who is our ultimate spouse in the gospel. He laid down his life for his bride to redeem her and purify her. He didn't love her simply because she was already good-looking and lovely. But rather, his love bestows loveliness upon her, and she's changed. That's how the gospel works, experiencing grace, expressing truth, bringing change in people's lives. Here's one more. Another uh, from Paul, Titus 2, 12 through 14. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Here's the phrase I want you to think about here. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Ooh. Training us to renounce ungodliness. Some of your translations may say, teaching us to say no. <laughs> and think about this, you, and, and particularly you younger folks who are here. Think about this. Think about things you know you, you shouldn't do. Think of all the reasons that you could pick to say no to ungodly behavior. A lot of reasons why. You might think, well, I shouldn't do this because I'll really look bad if I get caught. We've all been there, haven't we? Yeah, I'll, pro I'll probably get caught. And when I do, I'll look bad. I'll say no because if I do this, I'm probably going to be excluded from a group that I'd like to be considered a part of. Or I'm going to say no because if I do it, I'll lose my self-respect. I'll regret it later. Or maybe, we're, maybe we try to bring God into the equation and we'll say, well, I'm going to say no because I bet if I do this, something bad's going to happen to me. I won't get the health, the wealth, the happiness that I want. Or maybe we even take it to extreme. He's like, I remember, I remember Randy talking about hell last Sunday. I don't want to go there, so I'm not going to do it. You see, the motive behind every one of those no's has something in common. And it's not love for God. It's not love for other people. It's not out of that sense that Paul's talking about that he said, you're, you know, Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. He came to purify for himself a people that are his very own, a people who are zealous for good works. It's 
All that list of no's I gave you are basically self-centered impulses of the heart. But Paul says, no, the grace of God trains you and me towards self-control. Those who experience the redeeming work of Jesus in their lives, they get taught. They get trained. Trained toward experiencing and expressing it in their lives. Now let's take one more step with this. Think about that word training. What does training make you think of? Sometimes you start a job and you go through a period of on-the-job training. There's training you have to do before you can be certified to do a certain job. Probably, for some of you, more of you think about it, what you made a resolution to do starting in January so that you'd lose, <laughs> lose that weight. There's training that involves in getting in, that's involved in getting in physical shape. Or if you're, uh, whether you're a, a golfer, a swimmer, baseball player, football player, basketball, volleyball, soccer, whatever, there's training that's involved in that so that you can do it. You know, we say you got to get in shape. There's training that involves muscle memory and training your hands. The relationship between your eye, eye and hand coordination. Movements to make on the court, on the pitch, on the field. And you do them over and over. You do them over and over and you're training. You're training your mind. You're training your muscles, right? We all know how this works. It involves teaching. It involves coaching. It usually involves someone standing over you and going, no, 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 don't do it that way. Do it this way. Let me show you how to do it. Do it exactly the way I do it. Now do it again. Now do it 50 more times. Now do it until you throw up. No, I'm sorry. That was my experience in basketball. <laughs> Somebody, though, is warning you, pushing forward, pushing you forward, challenging you, and encouraging you forward over time. That's how training works, doesn't it? Tim Keller puts it this way in his 2012 book, uh, Center Church. You must let the gospel argue with you. You must let the gospel sink down deeply until it changes your views and the structures of your motivation. You must be trained and discipled by the gospel. Trained and discipled. Let the gospel argue with you. You know, a good trainer, teacher, coach will argue with you. We'll tell you something you don't want to hear and ask you something that you might not otherwise be inclined to do. I have friends, some of you know, uh, Tim Starnes has been pastor for, I don't know what it's Tim been at Covenant Press Cleveland, like 87 years or something. He's been there. It's like, okay, it's really, it's like 45 years, but still that's amazing. And Tim and I used to serve together on the uh, board of Reformed Youth Ministries, you know, the RYM thing. And I remember we were we were talking about a difficult decision that we were trying to make as a board. This is probably 20 years ago, maybe. And Tim, in the way that he does, something about, well, you know, uh, we were kind of divided on this board was divided. We we're going to do this. We we're going to do that. And Tim said, well, he said, you know, I think I want to do this. But if the rest of y'all want to do this, he said, I, he said, I can submit to that. Um, you know, and, and, 
if you're an elder in the church, you're a pastor, you've taken a vow to, be, to submit to your brethren in the Lord. But here's what Tim said about submission, and this works in a lot of places. He says, he says yeah, I, he says, I'm all about submission as long as it was something I was already inclined to do. <laughs> See, that's not submission, is it? <laughs> that's just being either agreeable or kind of weak, meh. No, submitting is, ooh, this is not what I was, this was not what I would have done. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it because you say so. A lot of times we're faced with that, with the grace of God in our lives, training us to say no to ungodliness. Okay, I would react this way in anger. I feel it. It feels right to be angry and to bring, lower the boom on you. But first, because Jesus told me so, I, I'm going to do some beam analysis in my own eye first before I talk to you about this. See, that's, that's training, and it's training you away from something that comes very naturally to most of us. The grace of Jesus trains me to get out of my need to be constantly respected, to be highly regarded, my need to be in control, my need to have power over others. Am I the only one who has that problem? Okay, I just wanted to make sure. I, I was going to strike it out if I was the only one. My need to have my, uh, my desires gratified immediately my anger, my greed. The grace of Jesus does this by giving me the Holy Spirit to grasp, again, the grace that I've experienced, how, how loved I am in Christ, how safe and secure I am in Christ, how accepted I am in Him, that I am righteous in Him. I don't have to prove myself by my performance. I don't have to lie to look better. I don't have to retaliate in anger against people who've wronged me and offended me. I don't have to worry about money because Jesus says, God's going to provide for me. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And these things that you worry about, they'll be added to you. I don't have to look to possessions and food and sex and drugs and comfort to give me the things that only Jesus can give me. I have experienced a grace that is greater than all that. And so have you. Grace that is greater than all my sin and greater than all my righteousness. And now I'm set free to love you, to give, to share, to walk in discipleship. So here's where discipleship comes in as we get to the end. Maybe when I've said the word discipleship, you thought, Oh, yeah, yeah, that's when you meet one-to-one -one with somebody and you go through a fill-in-the-blank book. Maybe somebody, you've done that somewhere along the way. And that's a good thing. Now, if that's the thing that you thought about when I said discipleship, listen to me. Let me challenge you to stretch out and expand your thinking beyond that just a little bit. Because that's like thinking about fitness in terms of doing push-ups. And that's the only thing. <laughs> you just say, well, if I can do one push-up or I can do five or I can do 50 and be like Jason, do 100 every morning. Is it every morning? No, he's shaking his head. Okay. Every other morning. Yeah. Push-ups are good for you, but fitness and health physically are a lot more than just doing push-ups. Doing just one exercise. I want you to think of, as we close this out, discipleship in the Christian life in terms of spiritual fitness training. 
The U.S. Armed Forces has used for a long time the language of being fit for purpose. That means, for example, the, the Army is not interested in just developing these, you know, these massive bodybuilding soldiers. You, you know Arnold, you know, you know Arnold, right? You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger was, was in the Austrian army. It was comp it's compulsory for teenagers in Austria. Um, and so he goes in at 18, but he had already started to develop this love of weightlifting, bodybuilding, and he found that this was at odds with the training schedule and regimen. And he, he would sneak off the base and go at night so he could go work out, <laughs> sneak back in. And he, was, he had this big competition coming up, and he, got, he gets caught one time. And, uh, but his, anyway, it's a long story. You can watch the documentary yourself, read an article about it. But he, uh, it, it comes of this conflict. He got in trouble more than once. But at one point, his commanding officer kind of realized, wait, this guy's kind of, this guy's unusual. He's special. And he started to make some allowances for him to go compete because it was good, it was good PR. But that's not, that's not the way the armed forces look at fitness and readiness. In a military context, the purpose is, is warfare. They have a concept called total force fitness that's a holistic, all-of-life thing. Our military personnel are, are being equipped on a variety of levels of people who can carry out the mission and do it effectively, do it efficiently, do it safely as they possibly can. And Randy said it last week in here, Madison Heights mission statements is challenging you to think of church not only as a refuge, but also as a place of, of rehab, a fitness center, I'll stretch it that way. To make disciples, the thing Jesus commanded all of us to do is to train men and women and teenagers and children to perform the basic body movements that enable the local church to perform its biblical roles as a refuge, as an outpost of heaven in this world. And this month-long teaching series is about developing your core. You know what that is, right? You know, a core, core has a lot of different meanings, C-O-R-E, not C-O-R-P-S. I don't know how that becomes core. But anyway, C-O-R-E, the innermost part of something. You know, an apple and a pear, they've got a core. That English word core is related to the Latin word C-O-R, core, which is where we get like cardio from, cardiologist, heart, uh, Spanish corazón, which you go eat in a Mexican restaurant. If you listen to the music, mi corazón is in every song. If you may not understand the rest of the words, but that's somebody talking about, sing, he's singing about my heart. In a nuclear power plant, the core in the inner part of the reactor contains that radioactive fuel where the, those powerful reactions take place that generate electricity. See, I told you it would come back to electricity again. In computer hardware, there's a core. Core is where the processors are linked together to perform a single integrated center of operations. And then I've saved for last the one that maybe many of you thought of first, because again, because it's January, you thought about your core as like this right here. What lies at the foundation of bodily movement? 
The core of a disciple or of a church body is the most important innermost part, the home of the basic dispositions and desires that control our actions. Your, the core of your body is that support structure that you need to carry out everyday activity, standing, sitting, walking, running, turning, lifting, carrying. And then that's the basis of all kind of more complex moves like playing the piano, cooking a meal, lifting a baby, performing surgery, changing a flat tire. And we also know from that world too, what happens when you live a sedentary lifestyle, when you don't move around, when you don't exercise your core, it gets weak, doesn't it? And those things get harder and harder to do. Yeah, a weak core makes it harder to perform everyday tasks. The the early church in Acts is presented to us at the end of chapter 2. People who are, I would say, doing the movements. They're working the core. Just this quick overview description that Paul gives. Acts chapter 2. These early disciples in Jerusalem, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added their number to their number day by day, those who were being saved. There it is. There's the action. There's the electricity. There's the movement. There's the discipleship happening. So therefore, just like with your physical core, here are a couple of things that matter. Posture matters. Stand up straight, you know, they tell you. Your posture matters with your core. Bible's telling us to take a particular posture. You know, Paul says, stand firm. Therefore, put on the whole armor of God there in Ephesians 6. Obviously, exercise matters. Nutrition matters. What you're taking in matters. Understanding some things about how biology works in your body, that matters. So my extension of that is theology matters. Doing this together matters. Church together matters. Corporate worship matters. It's why I was very, the reason why I was very willing two months into this job to say, when, when I was asked, would you help with the music and uh, worship? It wasn't because, oh, good, I just need to, have, I need to have people looking at me more. That was not why. You know, I'm just a ham and a performer, and I need airtime. No. It was because what we do when we sing is a huge part of our discipleship. Most of you will never read a systematic theology volume, but you sing hymns and songs. And that builds this sense of understanding, this language of what the gospel is, who I am, what, is God, what does God want me to do? So that kind of teamwork, singing together, praying together matters. What I express in my life is a reflection of my experience. He who has been forgiven much, Jesus says, loves much. Let's pray. Father, help us. Uh, help us in this new 
year and this revisit of the basic uh, mission and commitments, values of our church to be working the core of, of understanding the gospel and how you want us to stand and move and live. And may that work out into a thousand different expressions of, of the truth of the gospel in self-forgetting love, in words and deeds of, of boldness, in suffering for the sake of Christ, and in being willing to spend and to be spent for His sake. For He, he became poor for our sakes, that through His poverty we might become rich. Uh, may we continue to grow and benefit in that together, in Jesus' name. Amen.